Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken. My name is Justin White, I am your host. This is episode 80, 80. Uh, my guest this week is my new pal, Brett Ingram. Uh, he is a film director. He is a father of one daughter, like myself. Uh, he's an artist in other ways. And he's just a very kind-hearted uh, gentleman, if you ask me. Uh, we had never met before this conversation, and I'm really honored to have gotten a chance to talk to him about two very uh, important documentaries, in my opinion, about two very interesting, unique, brilliant individuals. Um, rather than tell you what they are now, I think we should just get right into it, and then I'll tell you all about them and how to find them at the end. Um, so I hope everybody's hanging in there. I know these are tough and surreal times for a lot of us. Uh, but one of the positive benefits of this situation is that the birds can speak to each other again and we get to listen. So how did you come to meet Bruce or how did you, what, what led you to, to making the movie? Uh, well, going all the way back, I think it was 1991. I was in film school and I was editing a, a short documentary that I was making for a um, class project. And um, <clears throat> one of my professors um, was writing a book on the history of clay animation and so he was, he had invited Bruce Bickford to come to our film festival that we had on campus uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And, um, and prior to that, he just, he handed me this tape and it was the amazing Mr. Bickford on VHS. And he said, pop that in the, the editor there and, and take a look at this. And I popped it in. I was just like, my brain almost exploded. I was just like, what is this, you know, and what, what, who made this? And it just, the unbelievable um, amount of labor um, that I knew had to go into something like, like that, being familiar with stop motion and having done some of it myself, you know, it was just mind boggling to me that um, the way that his work was just everything in the frame was moving, pulsing, um, just so full of life. And then of course, just the um, unbelievable imagination that this person had. I, I just said, who is this guy? And so he told me, he said, his name's Bruce Bickford and, you know, explained the connection that, you know, um, Bruce had worked um, for Frank Zappa for, I think it was about six and a half years back in the seventies. And that this film the amazing Mr. Bickford um, was animation that Bruce had done some before he ever met Frank Zappa and some while he was um, under his employ and and then um, Frank edited it and and uh, put a score to it. So that was the first time that I ever saw Bigford's work, and I just remember thinking, I I, I want to meet the person behind this. It's just you know so original this work, and you know, and it was it was um, violent and dynamic and um, but magical and uh, just had so many great qualities that appealed to me. Um, 
<clears throat> and um, and so when Bruce came to our film festival, this would have been 1991. Um, my professor asked me to sort of be his liaison um, or you know chaperone while he was there because he said, you know, you know, Bruce has some you know particular needs that you know as far as diet and and different things, and he said he's kind of an unusual person, so you know, he would appreciate it if I would kind of look after Bruce. So I did. And he ended up staying uh, with me and my girlfriend at the time uh, for that weekend. And so I got to know him a little bit, but he was, um, he's a man of few words until you get to know him. Right. That was my experience too. (laughs) Even after getting to know him, it was hard to pull, pull too much out of him. Yeah. And he, he, he's not, he's not much for small talk. He'll just, he, not at all. He just dives right into, you know, some heavy topics sometimes without, you know, any warning at all. So. Totally. Which I actually really appreciate. I'm I'm that way myself and it's can turn off certain people, but oh uh, yeah. Most people are like that. It's it's a treat. You get to just go deep right away. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate it a lot. And um and so I got to know him uh, a little over that weekend, and then we stayed in touch and then I went out and actually shot um, an interview with Bruce in 94. So that was uh, three years later. Um, and I knew then I wanted to make a, a longer film about, about him at some point, but just didn't have the budget, you know, and I got out of film school and, you know, had racked up some student loan debt and, you know, found out that, you know, the world is just not set up to hire independent filmmakers straight out of film school. Right. <laughs> so I was struggling for money. And then the whole uh, DV, you know, digital video revolution happened. Um, and that was, you know, late nineties when basically, you know, really good quality, uh, cameras very at the time, very high quality standard definition cameras were available for a fraction of what, um, broadcast quality, um, video cameras had, had, um, been available in the past. So I was able to do that. And then I would just scrape up some money and finally went out there in 99 and started shooting what eventually became monster road. So great. Was he, um, when you got there was my, I don't even know how to ask. Was he welcoming? I mean, was he, it seemed like he was pretty willing from viewing the movie. It seems like he was fairly willing to let you shoot whatever he was doing. And, um, he seemed game for it. Is that true? Or, or did you find it hard to get through his sort of exterior wall? No, I mean, there were, there were a lot of difficulties in, in making the film about him and I'll, I'll get to those, but as far as being welcoming, no, he was. And I, and I found that to be the case, you know, over the years for a period of time, I was sort of his unofficial manager of sorts where people would want to get in touch with him, but they would contact me to put them in touch with him. And he was always welcoming, you know, other people to, I mean, basically he was looking at like, you know, self-promotion, you know, anybody that's, you know, taking an interest in his work and and wanting to help um, promote it by profiling it. However, um, he was open to. So, but the difficulties came more along the lines of basically, um, you know, filmmakers, um, in general, just by their nature tend to be, you know, there's, there's a lot, um, a lot of different aspects to making a film. It requires somewhat of a control freak to bring all those things together and actually realize some vision that you have. And so 
But then for animators, it's like, you know, an order of magnitude higher. And so Bruce was very controlling. And then I'm trying to, you know, make the film that I want to make. And so he, a lot of times he was trying to direct me on how to shoot my movie about him. And it could be, yeah, it was, that made it difficult. And, um, but we, we, and we had some um, arguments about it a few times, but finally we came to sort of a, a truce where we sort of figured out, you know, here, here are the boundaries, here's how it's, how it's going to work. And um, so that was one thing. And then the other thing is he's, he was the kind of guy who, I mean, he, he never, I mean, he worked for Frank Zappa those years and he was you know in the military for a few years other than that bruce had never really had any kind of a job where he had to answer to anyone else you know um i mean even working with zappa i think he was had pretty much free reign to you know manage himself and and um as long as he turned out the work and so um bruce didn't always understand that it was costing me a whole lot of money i mean to me it was costing a lot of money and flying all the way across the country because I'm living in North Carolina and he's in Seattle. And so I'd get there and maybe have a week to shoot, you know, three days ago by before we ever really got to doing anything on the film because he always wanted to do what he wanted to do. He didn't want to take a break, you know, to sort of film things that were going to be relevant to the movie. So that was another big challenge. Right. That makes sense. Do you have examples of ways in which he was trying to direct you to direct him? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure I, I know I've got, uh, you know, outtakes of this footage, but there were a couple of times when he was, I mean, he'd get really belligerent. He's like, why are you shooting it from over there? He's like, put the camera right here and, you know, <laughs> uh, it, you know get a, a wider view or, you know, more close up here. And, you know, why are you shooting it over there? And, uh, <laughs> and finally I was that's like, awesome. Bruce, that's your movie. The one there in front of you that you're animating, that's your movie. And then the bigger picture, this is my movie about you making your movie. So you just have to respect that, you know, I'm going to put the camera where I want to put it. You know, I'm open to ideas, but you're not directing it. So that's one of the main examples was really just like camera angles. And, um, right. Which is something that's obviously important to him. Uh, you know, and he, he talked about it. I, I actually had him on the podcast. I don't know if you know. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, just shortly before he died, I, it was actually just really amazing to be able to go spend some time with him. Um, and he, you know, he wasn't doing all that well and he was pretty tired and actually had been bitten by a dog that, oh, yeah. that the block, like twice by the same dog. And um, yeah. so it was especially hard to get, to get him to, I mean, I didn't want to wear him out and I felt like I sort of was just by asking him questions and, um, but yeah, he, we did talk about camera angles and that was one of the things he said that makes his stuff. I mean, a lot of his animation since the, he's just moving the camera out of place and back into place, out of place, into place. A lot of it is the same angle, the same front on shot, but he's always changing every bit of everything in the frame, which is just mind boggling Yeah, to think about, like you said, like what, with animation, so often there's the the background, which is uh, stagnant, and then the character is moving through it. But that's never the case with his stuff. It's no. Every, always alive. Every, everything every, has a possibility of coming alive at any point, and everything seems to have a average lifespan of about two seconds. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> that was the other thing that drives me crazy watching it is just like, oh my God, he's building and destroying these incredible things in the span of, I mean, for him, it's hours, I guess. It's all stretched out. He's probably looking at this, but when you watch it, it's three seconds. This face evolves uh, and then it's a hamburger and then it's destroyed and then, you know, yeah, it's, it's incredible. But I, it's, uh, it's almost hard to watch knowing that these, these beautiful works of art are being obliterated just as fast as they come into view. Yeah. But it's so beautiful to watch. It's like nothing. I, I can't think of another animator that comes close. He, in my eyes, he is the master. He's the the best that ever was. And I know there are a lot of different styles and a lot of, you know, a lot of really cool stuff out there, but there's nothing like his. No, there's not. I think he really, I mean, as far as, um, I mean, there are obviously a lot of other great animators too, working in the various uh, mediums that you can work in, whether it's 2D or 3D and whether it's, you know, a computer animation or, or puppets or, you know, but as far as clay animation, I think Bruce understood the medium and it's like capacity. He understood how to use that medium better than any other animator that I've ever uh, come across because he took full advantage of the fact that, you know, this plasticine is malleable and, you know, allows things to come to life. I mean, it's, it's always, um, you know, to contrast it with um, other clay animated works. I don't know. I'm just thinking uh, like, easy references for people that um, maybe aren't as into um, experimental animation, for instance, but think of like something like Wallace and Gromit, you know, it's like um, the, the animators on, on those, that uh, TV show and those, and the films um, obviously super talented um, guys and great animators, but you know, the clay, other than the facial expressions and then the bodies moving, you know, throughout um which is done expertly you know beautifully but it's not like with bruce's work where everything is you know coming to life or has the possibility to and so he utilized the medium better than you know anyone that i've ever seen same here that's a, that's a great way to put it i think it's it's on it's unquestionable that um it, the, it's just the morphing it's the constant morphing of everything that you see and with his line drawings too it's happening you have to watch them i mean his line animation you have to watch it over and over and over again just to see what each thing is doing you know because it's so hard to keep track of the whole picture but yeah. but it's just brilliant and you know that must be what his brain is doing i mean when i sat there talking to him you could tell he was like he's just sort of tolerating me and meanwhile he's dreaming what you know maybe things he'd rather be doing and uh, and, uh you know he's got these he's got file boxes full of stories that he's written that are yet to be animated and he's got yeah. them all he showed me like file after file just stuff that he was hadn't gotten to yet but it, it was his plan to get to all of it yeah and, uh, and he, when he was animating particularly when he was doing the 2d the drawn animation like when he was doing clay animation, it requires absolute like hundred percent of your attention constantly because he never used like um, he never had like video playback of what he was animating, so he had to remember from frame to frame what he had moved and in which direction and how far. 
which is like, you know, I've told, I've described it as like playing multiple games of chess at once in your head. And, you know, there it's, it's incredible. It is. And, but then with the drawn animation, he could take a break at any point. Cause right there it is compare previous frames and, you know, and he can just pick up at any point. So he always kept um, next to his drawing table. He had scraps of paper where he suddenly had an idea for, you know, a new film story or, or, some existing story he would jot down his thoughts you know and he just saved those scraps of paper that's great he did some of that while we were talking actually he we <laughs> were he was drawing the whole time we we talked which i thought was perfect for him it's sort of where he's most comfortable yeah and it already felt awkward to be in his space i mean i i feel fine i intrude on people's space without too much uh, reservation but with bruce i just wanted to I guess because he's so particular and because he's been living this, had been living this one way for so long. Um, I just uh, didn't want to interrupt that. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking, um, I know um, uh, David Lynch has uh, talked about, you know, living the art life and what that really entails is sort of dedicating everything, you know, to really truly be an artist, you kind of set your life up so that everything you're doing is, um, makes that possible to, de- to dedicate yourself or devote yourself to your art form. And right. no one lived that art life, you know, to as great a, of an extreme as Bruce Bickford that I know of. And I've known a lot of artists, but he, this guy, that's what he did from the time he woke up until the time he went to sleep. Everything, I mean, besides just the daily functions of, you know, eating or bathing or, you know, going to the grocery store or whatever, everything else revolved around his art. And it was like that seven days a week, you know, 365 days, you know, a year and so on for decades. And that's what he did. It's amazing. And it seemed, it seemed to me that anytime he wasn't doing it, he was thinking about doing it. He was (laughs) wishing he could get the other activity over with so he could get back to what mattered. Oh yeah. So you can imagine that was the other thing I was talking about as far as trying to make you know, Monster Road with him was really difficult because he would be working on, let's just say maybe he was making these cardboard sleds at one time. They're like, you know, almost like a Christmas sleigh. Um, Yeah, I saw those in his garage. Okay, yeah. So he was working on those. And when I came out and it was like pulling teeth to get him to just, I was like, Bruce, you know, this is costing me a lot to come out here. Uh, I saved up a lot of money to come make this trip and I'd like to make progress on the documentary. Do you think you could just set that aside and start back on it next week? And it was just like, you know, pulling teeth to get him to sort of set something like that aside. It was just, he didn't like his work being interrupted. Yeah. You know, I tried to explain, I was like, it's not going to make that interesting of a documentary. If, if all I'm showing you is for a whole week working on the sleds, you know, we need to, to do, have more variety, you know? And so that was a big struggle working with him because, you I know, totally get it. on his terms, but it worked yeah, out. Everything on his terms. <laughs> yeah. It's time to make mate. <laughs> it's time to go climb a tree <laughs> or swing these fire, this fire chain around. Or whatever. Flaming Kusari. Yeah. <laughs> that I, so I watched, I watched monster road and then my brother arranged for us to go visit him uh, with, with a friend of ours, a really good friend, and my daughter, who at the time was only like 18 months old or something. Oh, my gosh. And um, first of all, I was really grateful to him for even allowing her in the house. Like, it seemed 
I mean, I had her, I had a close eye on her, but I, I yeah. felt like that was a big deal for him to have this little toddler in his space. What was that? What, what was his? I've never seen him around kids. Wonder what, what was he like? Oh, uh, it was amazing. I mean, he, I, I sort of expected him to be averse to her, to just the idea of kids, but he seemed he seemed to be kind of fascinated by her, and um. I mean, I should say my daughter was really sweet and quiet and well-tempered and not, you know, she wasn't like freaking out and knocking into everything. You could tell he was a little anxious and he did say, you know, please, you know, just keep an eye on her. Don't let her <laughs> break anything. But um, I, the, I'll i have to send you this picture. I asked him if I could take a picture of him with my daughter and he said yes, which was very cool. But the way that <laughs> the picture says it all, the way that he's holding her you know she couldn't really walk around that well well so she kind of, I sort of put her over near him and he put his hands he was kind of just like holding her and like he would a piece of clay or something <laughs> yeah but it's really beautiful the look on her face and on his face I'll send you I'll send I'd you love that. to see that I can see him connecting with kids though because he they he I mean um a lot of people when they look at his work for the first time they see you know sort of the a lot their their first remarks are usually about you know the sort of grotesque aspects or the violence or you know darker themes but you know he he had a really he still was very childlike um, right. not childish but childlike still had that um kind of an imagination that you know hadn't hadn't been you know beaten out of him like for for most people like, I mean, speaking for myself, you know, going through public schools, they pretty much, you know, did everything they could to beat creativity out of you. Not, totally. not intentionally, but just by, you know, it's design. And he always retained that childlike curiosity and, and you could see it in his work. Absolutely. Yeah. That was my thinking at the time was like, he, he can relate to her on a level that most adults can't. And he probably values and respects her view more than most adults you know? you're probably right yeah you just didn't want her to smash anything you know <laughs> yeah. um, but um uh, but oh and the other thing is that the very first thing i saw when i stepped in the front door was were those uh what did you call them kusari sorry k-u-s-a-r-i i think it's uh, it's a a japanese um term for whatever that thing is it's, like, you know. it's basically a, a thing that you light on fire at the end of a chain and then swing it around in the air as as you can see him do right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. they were sitting like a foot inside the door right now, like <laughs> as if they're a, a critical component of his everyday life I, know. I think he i think that was the first time he'd ever done that when when i he it was something he said he'd always wanted to try and he's like hey you know because i asked him what is this thing laying out here in the garage and, and he said oh that's a kusari and 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 uh, he said i've always wanted to like douse it and you know uh kerosene i can't remember if it was kerosene or gasoline and um i think it was kerosene and then he you know then he wanted to you know sling it around while it was flaming and so that's not a uh, it's not typically something you would douse and set a light i don't you know i don't know that's a good question i never even i just assumed that. that was part of it like it, it's like a you know a performance thing but maybe that was his added element yeah 
I'm not sure. So uh, it's just a weapon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, like, I, I googled it while we we're talking. <laughs> okay, it's an ancient weapon, and but he made it even more fierce. I guess. Yeah, it was used yeah. in feudal Japan. So yeah, that's amazing. But he just, um, you know, he 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 loved. Well, he just he loved fire and fireworks and that kind of thing. Yeah, and weapons. And oh yeah, and weapons. Oh my god. Yeah, I learned after after his passing that he had quite a collection of, of blades and yeah all kinds of other things yeah it kind of freaked me out one time when i um i think it was maybe this it was i think it was the third time i visited him um the third time in 2000 that i did and was out there you know going to stay for i ended up staying three weeks that time and the first night i got there you know and, and by that point i had known that he was obsessed with the the green river killer case right we talked uh, about that a bit yeah, because they hadn't solved it at that point, and and of course it turns out later that the guy lived right down the street from Bruce, and all this was taking place basically in Bruce's you know neighborhood because his house overlooked this the valley, and down at the bottom was the the Green River. And I remember um, on an earlier visit, Bruce had taken me to some of the spots where the bodies had been found, and I think he was really intrigued about it because I mean, you know. I didn't grow up, you know, in a neighborhood that was, you know, had a active serial killer that no one had caught before. I'm sure it would capture my imagination too. And so, so he was really, um, he talked about it a lot and he was writing a story. One of his stories that you're talking about, the story files was about the green river killer. And he had a lot of kind of offshoots from that having to do with, um, real aspects of, of the real case. And, and then, you know, I, it is, I've joked with uh, like, you know, with Eric or some uh, other friends about how I felt bad thinking this. But um, at one point I started thinking, I wonder if like, could Bruce be the green river killer? <laughs> I just like, I, you know, it's, it's, it's possible. And then so when, part, right, when I got there, he was showing me his knife collection and it was um, in a closet um, beneath the stairwell um, in the basement. And he opened it and there were just, all kinds of knives and that I didn't even know certain ones existed. And he'd be like, you know, this one's really good for gutting somebody. And this one's, <laughs> Jesus, this one's good for a last ditch effort. That was one of my favorite phrases. That's <laughs> stuff. And then he's like, well, you're probably pretty tired and ready to turn in. And I was like, yep. And my bedroom that I was staying in down there in his basement was right next to that room. And so <laughs> I go to bed and I was like, maybe kind of uneasy. And then the weirdest thing was when I was getting the bed ready, I lifted up the pillow and there was a, an, a dried animal vertebra. Holy shit. Yeah, was... <laughs> That's insane. Well, I also wanted to ask what it was like hanging out with his his dad, who wound up being a, a sizable part of the documentary. Yeah, I, I had known. I mean, I didn't really know when I first went out there. I didn't know. Um, I knew that his mom had passed away, but I didn't really know anything about his dad, whether he was still living or whatever. But when I got out there, um, the first thing, like I filmed this phone call that he made. And it was really the first time he'd made any mention of his dad. 
um, he's like, I got to make a call. And I was like, um, he's like, I got to call my dad. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, do you mind if I film it? And he goes, oh, sure, go ahead. And that's when he was, you know, just on the phone was saying, you know, how long can you hold out? You know, what if you... Right. So, uh, and it wasn't until I got over there that I realized that his dad was, you know, had um, Alzheimer's disease and was sort of starting to um, really slip at that point. And, um, um, but when I met him and, you know, just after hanging out with him about an hour, I was like, oh, he's got to be a big part of this film because they, it's like they, they lived in parallel, not even parallel universes, more like concentric you know, sphere, you know, universe, like a universe with inside a universe. Right. Neither seemed to be aware of their similarities. They had a very strained relationship and his dad was, you know, really, and I don't know if he was always that um, existential in his thoughts, but, you know, he was, I guess at that stage of his life, especially he was, you know, asking all these deep questions about, you know, is there a God, you know, uh, how could there be one? How could there not be one? And, and he was always, you know, asking questions like that. And right. who made this looking at a rainbow and, you know, yeah, it was like that, that kind of childlike astonishment, like that we were talking about with Bruce, his dad was just, you know, so completely astonished at everything he came into contact with. And I never knew how much of that had to do with, you know, him losing his memory and, and the other things that happen cognitively for people who are um, suffering from Alzheimer's. But, um, you know, and he just uh, he had this dry wit, um, you know, his classic Midwestern uh, dry sarcasm. And I recognize it because my um, one set of my grandparents were from the Midwest and they kind of shared that they're kind of stoic and didn't say a whole lot, but when they did, it was, you know, a lot of it was dry wit. And so I appreciated that. And, um, you know, so I just decided then I was like, his, his dad's got to be a big part of this movie. And it worked out that way. It's just amazing. Those, those scenes are really something to behold. Um, cause he is just kind of, he's, he's obviously contemplative, but he's present, uh, I mean, I guess he sort of goes in and out, but it, but you can see he's just thinking about every little thing that, that comes across and he's so straight with it. He just says it, you know, he's saying things like, yeah, I guess, I guess he was kind of my favorite, you know, talking about one of his four children, four sons. and uh, Even the youngest, yeah. Yeah, and stuff like, you know, am I, do I seem honest? Or he's was- fixated on honesty. and Yeah, he was, he was definitely, like, that was a big thing for him was, he wanted to make sure that he was seen as honest. He strove to be honest and, um, you know, valued that quality in other people and had no problem calling out others, particularly politicians that were not honest. And, you know, and I saw that trait in Bruce. I always describe Bruce as being one of the most honest people I've ever met. And that can be good. And it can always also be a little um, (laughs) problematic in terms of relationships because he would have no problem just being brutally honest with you about something, you know. And right. He also was, had none of the sort of social filters that most people have. Right. right. He walked straight over the barriers of, you know, of political correctness. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh boy, and speaking of politics, I never could get a grasp on uh, there's uh, it's almost impossible to describe Bruce's politics. They were all over the map, you right. know, both extremes, you know. <laughs> it does seem that way yeah 
Well, it seems like his, I mean, the interesting thing about his dad is he's what, an aerospace engineer? Mm-hmm. So most engineers I've met have a very sort of clinical approach and, you know, very pragmatic and they're not really dreamers and existentialist thinkers. So you're right. That was, that was really interesting. That makes me think it may have been the Alzheimer's that was sort of, you know, triggering that, that part of his brain. Um, yeah, it could, but I also found like, cause I went through that he kept, he was one of those people that kept like all the letters he'd ever written and the ones he'd received, like he made copies of the letters and kept them in notebooks. And I looked back a number of years before he ever was diagnosed and he was concerned about these sort of things. Wow. And I think he had a lot of artistic ability. I mean, we could see the way he did things around his house. It was really creative and it didn't have, he was utilizing engineering skills, but it was, they were, they were really creative endeavors, the way that he built things and added rooms and all this stuff around his house. That's but, true. Um, but I, you know, in it, throughout his kitchen, one of my favorite things was like throughout his kitchen and bathroom, maybe a couple of the rooms there were, he had cut out um, pictures and things out of magazines and then he would add a caption to them. Right. Almost um, every single one had a caption, didn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And so what I found out was I think he always wanted to be a cartoonist, which is, again, another strange parallel that, I mean, Bruce is not a cartoonist, but he's, a you know, an animator and an artist. And um, and I remember George telling us, Bruce's dad, George, telling me that his brother, he had a brother named Harold, <clears throat> who, um, when they were working on the farm in Iowa, during the depression, um, you know, that's basically all they were doing. They were for periods of time, they wouldn't be in school. They'd be out working in the fields and his brother, Harold would read the, the newspaper in the morning and he could, he had a photographic memory. He could memorize all the cartoons. And so when they were out there working, he would retell them. He would describe what was in the pictures. And then he would recall all the, you know, the, the captions, the dialogue and them to entertain them. And um, so that was an interesting thing. I think George, you know, if, if it hadn't have been for the necessity of, you know, picking something pragmatic to earn a living, I think he would have liked to have been a, um, a cartoonist. He may have even said that at one point when I was interviewing him, but then that whole thing about the memory, because Bruce had uh, what I would call, you know, photographic memory and, and not just for visual details, but he could recall entire conversations from 30 years earlier, you know, right. People, people like he was, a, he was talking to me about the time he visited me in grad school and it was a guy, I couldn't even remember the guy's name. And I went to school with this person for four years. Bruce remembered <laughs> not only his name, but he remembered every, verbatim the whole conversation we had. And um, so he had this incredible memory. And I think George, did too. It must have run in the Bickford family because of, you know, Harold had that kind of memory. So I always thought it was particularly traumatic um, or, you know, tragic that um, that his dad, you know, of all things, the disease he gets is something that attacks, you know, something like, you know, your memory. That but, is pretty cruel. It seems to yeah. be, and it seems to be pretty common. I mean, I guess no matter who it's, who's afflicted with it, that's going to be a hard thing. Oh, absolutely. But somebody who sort of, you know, relies on that for themselves. That's how my grandfather was. And I don't even know necessarily if he had 
on the onset of dementia, but I know his memory was starting to go and it was killing him. It was just yeah. like the worst thing to, for somebody that smart. He was also an engineer and, um, and just incredible memory. He could talk about stuff that had happened 50 years ago and remember everybody's name and every, you know, every detail. Yeah. And I, and I learned too, that the, the, um, the way that the memory loss generally occurs with dementia or with Alzheimer's that it's the more recent memories, the more recent, the memory, you know, the less multiple connections it has, you know, since right. it had, since it's new and it hasn't been revisited many times and making new pathways and connections, it's the first to go. So like he could remember stuff, you know, going back to like the fifties and earlier, he could remember everything, but then further you moved toward the present it got foggier and foggier to the point that of course every time i visited him he didn't remember me from before that was really strange like i would go visit him one day um spend a few hours with him uh, maybe go out to eat uh, i took him to the barber shop one time and um we went to the boeing museum all these different outings and i filmed all these interviews with him but then every time when i went back the next day he, you know, I'd have to explain to him, I'm a friend of Bruce's. I was here yesterday. Right. I think and, it even happens in, in the film, doesn't it? Doesn't I think it? so. I know that in one of the extras, I think it's in there because I, I, I was over there and Bruce was long too. So this is a friend of mine, you, you know, you met him. He was over here um, yesterday and his dad just looked at me. He said, did you steal anything? to the next uh yeah truly brilliant and uh unique yeah. individual that you found for the next subject absolutely so uh i'll let you say his name so okay his name um so the documentary is called rockaterania and it's um about the life and the work by um uh, ronaldo cooler was his name and um he passed away in 2013 uh, at the age of 81. Um, and I finished the film was released about four years prior to that. And, um, and so he was another guy I just kind of came across by chance, Ronaldo, um, and rocket training refers to this imaginary country that he invented basically when he was a teenager. Um, and as sort of a means of escape. And then it gradually, 
turned into this kind of coded uh, metaphoric um, autobiography. So what happened in the country, ref, you know, reflected what was happening in it, in Ronaldo's um, actual life. And um, I, I met him on a bus, a city bus in Raleigh. I didn't really meet him. I just observed him. And he was such a character. He wore these uniforms that were worn by characters in Rockatrania. It was like a combination of like military Boy Scout uniform and Alpine hiker all wrapped into one. And he had, he was real tall, big booming voice and, um, you know, long white bushy beard and a white ponytail and just his ensemble. You couldn't, you couldn't miss him. I mean, you didn't forget him once you met him. And um, so he got off the bus at his stop and I had to keep going to get to my office um, a few stops down the way. I didn't see him again for two years. And then I took a job at the museum of natural sciences in Raleigh and found out that he was actually the scientific illustrator for the museum. And so we struck up a friendship and gradually he started revealing that, that he had this imaginary country and all these, this illustrated history of it. And he'd never shown it to anyone. And really? No one had ever seen it? Mm -hmm. No. Whoa. I mean, um, I think some of his, I think his parents saw some of it, but they never really took the time to understand what it was about. And they, they, they weren't really accepting of him. They weren't, yeah, they weren't supportive. They thought it was, you know, idle dreaming and they, they wanted him to do something practical and, you know, right. And Look. thought he was wasting his time. So when you saw him on the bus that first time, were you thinking, I got to, I got to meet this guy and, uh, or, or did you just take note of him and then not? I, I took him? note of him and I was like, because he's, I mean, I hate, to, it sounds so bad, but, but truly, I think a lot of people thought, well, in fact, I know a lot of people thought the, the same things about him when they first met him. I, I thought, you know, I just thought he's another one of these kind of crazy people that you meet on a bus sometimes. And cause he was just ranting and raving about how great um, public transportation is and how, how good, how it's better for the environment and how, you know, it's more sociable than, than uh, riding alone in a car and all this stuff. But he's, sitting in the front seat perched up there and just shouting this stuff out. And there, he wasn't talking to anyone. It was just saying it out loud. And the thing was, I started listening to him and I was like, actually everything he's saying is brilliant. And what I realized he's just so pure hearted and earnest, you know, something that you don't find, especially, especially these days, you don't find it much. Most people are, have at least some degree of cynicism. And he, you know, he was just truly appreciating that the city of Raleigh had taken the care to plant, you know, crepe myrtle trees in the median, you know, between, <laughs> between wow. lanes of the street or whatever. And he'd just be pointing out all these things and talking about how great it is. And so he uh, was just sort of orating from the, oh, from yeah. the to everyone yeah, delivering a monologue. And, and, um, <laughs> and so most of the people were just ignoring him and you could tell they were really uncomfortable and they would occasionally, you know, glance or steal a glance at him and just this look on their eyes, like, who is this guy? And of course, for me, I was like, who is this guy? But at the same time, I was like, I got to meet this guy. He's fascinating, you know, right. story. And I wasn't thinking at all about making a film about him. I just wanted to meet him. And um, so once I met, saw him at the, 
museum where I was working, um, we started hanging out and that's when gradually he started revealing that he had this whole other collection of personal work because he drew animal specimens for his job at the museum and he was really good at it. Um, it's a very specific skill and he, he was self-taught. And, um, but then he had these strange characters, these mutant characters, they're sort of androgynous humanoids or human figures um, that are neither male nor female. Right. These were plastered all over the walls of his office and they were drawn in that same style as scientific illustrations. So this really crisp, you know, black ink on white paper and using stippling for shading and um, just very precise. And they had like measurements on them and, um, you know, he would also have things like the bus schedule. He would handwrite on one of them or important phone numbers or even like grocery lists or sometimes on them. On, his, on the drawings. On the drawings in there. And I was just like, what, what is this about? And he just kind of brushed them off. He was like, oh, they're just, you know, it's just doodling. And I was like, no, this is not just doodling. There's something behind this. I don't know what it is. And and gradually it was revealed they were part of Rockaterania, but it was the only illustrations from Rockaterania that ever were, um, you know, out that anyone ever saw up until I made the film. And, and then he had a couple exhibitions after that, but, um, yeah. Did you get the sense that, sorry. I, I was saying the coworkers that, you know, they just, um, some people didn't care for him at all. Others absolutely adored him. And, and others, you know, there's always that kind of third, third and a third, like, middle third just didn't really carry the way that the people who loved him really loved him and the people that were turned off by him were really turned off and <laughs> no one seemed to really feel comfortable asking him they could tell that those those newton characters there was a, a you know an oddness to them and especially sort of in terms of a sexual nature right yeah and there's sort of some graphic uh yeah, it's too personal, the, I guess, for them to ask. Nobody really ever asked, nor about the uniforms. And, you know, when I found out that's like the uniform that they wear in the rocket train is National Labor Service. Um. Right. And you learned that he he designs them, in, including the ones that he's wearing. Or the, the ones oh, that yeah. Yeah. A tailor to have them made. Right? Yeah. He would buy them out of like military surplus magazines and then take them to the tailor and, and have them alter design and yeah amazing so did you feel like when you first asked him about the the drawings did you feel like he was guarded about it like he didn't want to let anyone into that world or was it just that nobody had ever really asked no it was definitely he had a he had his guard up it took a it took a long while in fact um it it got to a point where it really wasn't gonna go much further it didn't seem like um and i made a short like five minute piece um profile of him as a as kind of like a quirky you know, eccentric scientific illustrator and it was like a little five minute piece for a show on the national geographic channel um i did that but but i really wanted to make the film that would include this imaginary world and a lot of other aspects of his life that you know just are not something that Nat Geo is going to be interested in, you know, um, right. so, um, but once I start asking him these questions, you know, first he kind of brushed them off and then little, he would just little bits would sort of, you know, uh, trickle out here and there. 
and um, I just remained patient, but it got to a point where it didn't seem like he was going to reveal anything else. And so I still remained friends with him and hung out with him from time to time, but I had to get on with, you know, making something else. And that's when I went and, you know, finished Monster Road. And then after that, I, you know, checked in with Ronaldo and we'd grown closer over that time. And I, I guess he finally got to the point where he really felt like he trusted me and, and um, that he realized that I wasn't laughing at him for having done this. See, he always felt like he was ridiculed for doing it. Right. Um, and Which he had been by other, by his family or probably family and, and bullies and like high school and college or mostly in college, you know, people that knew he was doing something like this, you know, they would ridicule him about it, but, you know, and he couldn't understand the hypocrisy. He pointed out, well, you know, when, when, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know, created the whole, you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy and everything. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know, that's heralded as a work of genius. And he's like, well, all I'm creating is, you know, my own imaginary place. And I, you know, and I, I don't know what it is. If it was something about the fact that it was illustrated as opposed to being written, you know, wasn't taken as seriously. I don't know. Right. But, um, well, maybe also just the, I don't know, there's something that in, in watching the documentary, it's, it's so clear that he's just this, he's so earnest, you know, it's like he's so pure of heart, uh, even as an older man, you know, he, he yeah. still maintains the sort of uh, pure, I don't know, there's something so beautiful and, and sweet about him. Uh, that you can tell was there from the very beginning, but was just never really recognized or, or honored or appreciated. And somehow he still just kept that. I mean, I'm sure there had to have been some bitterness on his part, but, but he just stuck to it and just continued to tell the story, which as he said, mirrored his own, you know, it was basically his life. Uh, yeah. <laughs> being, and- uh, somehow, um, I'm losing the word for it, but I'll, I'll let you explain. Well, I think, uh, no, you're doing a great job. I, I, what I was going to say was, uh, you know, he, first of all, you know, it's of course never mentioned in the film and I, I wouldn't have wanted to, um, to do that because I, you know, w- wouldn't want him to be hurt by it, but it clearly, and he was never diagnosed, but clearly he, he, he all of his behavior sort of fits right into the, you know, what do you call it? The uh, DSM five, I guess they're up to now for autistic spectrum. I mean, he was high functioning, you know, somewhere on the autistic spectrum, right? Um, maybe Asperger's or something like that. But, um, but he was never diagnosed. And when he was growing up, it wasn't even a diagnosis anyway. And, and so people, people who were maybe less than empathetic just couldn't, you know, it's like if someone had said, well, he has autism, then they, some of these people might've been, Oh, okay. Now I understand. It's like, no, it's now it's permissible to be this way. Okay. But because they didn't, you know, they just thought he was weird, you know, and that's kind of left it at that. Um, so he had a lot of, he experienced a whole lot of bullying and ridiculing and, and I witnessed it, you know, while being with him. And a lot of times, thank goodness, it just went right over his head. Um, seemed to, you know, and even if it didn't, it, it just rolled off of him because he was so used to it. But the the most bitterness that he ever really seemed to hold was hold was towards his parents. Still, I mean, they 
long been dead and they were still alive and well in his, in his mind, as far as just, um, the way they had treated him and, um, their own hypocrisies and, um, he was pretty bitter about that. And so going back to rocket with all these, you know, he was very lonely and then to begin with, and then the family moved when his dad retired, his, you know, his dad had been a, um, he was German born. And then he, he came over after world war one and gradually, you know, was sort of like one of the, uh, poster child for, um, uh, achieving the American dream, you know, he pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and using his, his intellect and his, um, his own artistic ability, um, earned a, a good living as a, um, first as a painter, like landscapes and that kind of thing, industrial scenes, like for, you know, some big CEO of some steel company would hire him to, to paint a beautiful painting of one of their factories or something. And they would pay him for that. And then gradually he became, um, an industrial designer, primarily known for his um, designs of uh, streamlined steam engines and and tr- train cars during the Art Deco period, which are just beautiful designs. Oh, cool! And, so yeah, cool look at. But he was um, he he was rarely around. He traveled a lot. I mean, at one point he was traveling eighty five thousand miles a year by rail. So like you just sit down and do the math and go, oh my God, <laughs> you know, it's 3000 miles coast to coast. So just like, holy right. cow. Almost 30 trips back and forth. Exactly. And um, so he didn't see a whole lot of him and he was left kind of in the charge of his mother who had clearly had some, some emotional problems and made it pretty clear that she wished she had not had kids and <laughs> didn't hide that fact from Ronaldo. So getting back to the point I was going to make was the way that he approached Rockettrania from that autobiographical standpoint, to me, it reminds me of like these, um, you know, there's a whole, whole uh, trove of, of animators from Eastern Bloc countries that where they would um, sub, have subversive political messages hidden within uh, uh, uh mostly seemingly innocuous uh animated film but it would have like the themes would be you know implied they wouldn't be done direct because they were under such you know oppression right and so it was kind of like i saw it that way with ronaldo that a lot of this stuff was he was his parents figured in you know in the guise of you know doppelgangers in rocket they were actually the figures that he was representing in his story and they were not flattering pictures and they were oppressive figures. And he saw himself as sort of the working class, you know, people in rocket. Certainly oppressed one way or another. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. 
I love uh, his, the way he's describing uh, Peekle, right? Is that the, is that the name? Of her? And yeah. that's kind of, that sort of represents him in some ways, or just sort of the the underdog, or how would you how would you? Well, he actually was pretty straightforward about it. Um, I mean, the first couple of times I asked him, he's like, "I don't know who he is. I just designed him. It's just a character." And then, but then eventually he, you know, was saying that, "Yeah, you know, it's Pico is essentially like an alter ego of his, and Pico represented, um, well, the way he put it was, um, Ronaldo in real life felt like his mother had." so completely you know emasculated him that she had psych he said the words he used were she had psychologically neutered him and so that's why he came up with this idea of newtons and so they weren't born this way but they were neuterized you know basically through surgery they were made um asexual right even though he would refer to them by their by the pronoun that they were born with you know so pico really is a newton he's neither male nor female but he calls him a he because that's you know he started off as a boy and so he had newtons that were also referred to as females but um <laughs> started off as girls and yeah but then we're near yeah. yeah and just like you know the typical kind of um you know like we talk about that like the x and y chromosomes he also had a um um an N chromosome, like for neuter. <laughs> so, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And then what, what was the deal with the, the nose, the like slightly extended nose. And then some characters, they would have like these little polyps all over them. Yeah. I don't, you know, he never, he just, he never explained where that came from. As far as the, he called them beans on right. the noses He called them beans. In fact, one guy, one one character's nickname was Beans, and um, that's what he would call them. And I don't know where he got the idea to do that, but they kind of fall along with the shape that he he kind of like one of the traits that I've read about in terms of autism is you know there can be sort of obsession over certain things, whether it's repetition of something or just um, kind of obsessing over one detail or or just some action or behavior and like with Ronaldo, a lot of it came out with um uh what do you call those things let's see um i'll think of them in a minute they're basically like made up words that um for they mean something to him but they're very much an inside joke just to himself it's a word that refers to something he explained a lot of them to me but there's no way i could have kept up with all of them but but he was he fetishized that shape that kind of the shape of those um, warts or growths or whatever on these noses. And you also see them like in architectural designs. He liked that, that kind of shape. It's not exactly what I'd call, you know, phallic, but they're something along those lines and they were built into like spires and things like that in buildings. Right. So, but as far as the protruding nose, you know, I, I you know, he would say, you know, Peekle has a Nixon nose, you know, kind of like bulbous or, or, you know, longer on the tip. And, um, it was after, I think after he passed away and I was going through all of his papers and stuff and I found out where he got the idea for Peekle's face. And it was actually 
I found that he'd cut off this side of a, a of a milk carton I mean, back when they used to you know list missing children on right you know, back of milk cartons and it was a woman who was um a young woman or a high school girl that had been missing and he even i think he circled it and wrote something about people's face so that's who his face was based on wow because all the idea was that all of these kids that became newtons under Catherine, which of course represented his mother, Catherine, all these kids were considered like, you know, these unruly children. Many of them were like street urchins and she would pick them up off the street and have them neuterized and they would become kind of like, um, Oh, I'm trying to blank like in, uh, Turkish courts or Chinese court, uh, eunuchs. Thank you. Yeah. They, they were kind of like eunuchs. Yeah. And uh, they were kind of slaves that uh, had had no no real uh, identity. Yeah, in and of themselves, they just like do the bidding of of the queen. Yeah, exactly. But and then at the same time, um, the queen, uh, what Pickle was the queen's favorite Newton. So she, in a way, was um, much more favorable to him than to other newtons in her court like she would take him out to you know go to the opera out to eat and you know because some of the newtons ended up being forced into basically slave labor and right. that happened to people when he was a kid his mother took a real um or his adoptive mother Catherine, took a real shine to him so right do you think that was just his wishful thinking because it, it doesn't sound like his actual mother treated him very well. Well, it's interesting. I've read about this term in psychology called covert incest. And it's basically like, there may not be any like physical, like sexual contact, but it's a case where a parent makes one of their children sort of like a surrogate spouse. And it usually happens like a family where, you know, let's say it's, let's say it's the mother who makes the son like her surrogate spouse. Maybe it's because, and her relationship is bad with her husband or he's gone all the time or he's an alcoholic or whatever. And they end up becoming close, like boundaries are crossed where it, they're almost serving as an emotional surrogate spouse. And so I think some of that went on with Ronaldo, like from the things that he described, like in a way she kind of coddled him and overprotected him and tried to control him and, all that stuff, but it was for selfish reasons. In other words, like she wanted him, her love was conditional according to him that he, as long as he adhered to whatever she wanted him to do or be, then she could be somewhat affectionate. Otherwise she wasn't. So I think that's kind of where, so it, Pickle was Catherine's favorite, but it was kind of like he was being smothered by her simultaneously. Right. That makes sense. <clears throat> How it's amazing how astute he was to to understand all these psychological undertones, you know. Like so, that that must be such a common thing in so many families, but it's not really understood by the by the child, especially. Oh yeah. Or by the it perpetrator. Happened, it happened to me. It happened to me with my mom. Did it really? Oh yeah. Um, same situation or what? same situation, you know, just oversharing stuff and, um, yeah. 
you know, stuff that's just not appropriate to share with a kid and, and created some pretty warped views that took me many years of therapy to, to, to get rid of and revive. But um, somewhat more common than anyone knows. I mean, I would, I don't want to, I don't want to throw my, I mean, I think it was just a generational thing in some ways, like parents didn't really know you're not supposed to share that stuff. Right. There's definitely some inappropriate sharing in my family and uh wow well, yeah. and it, yeah it probably messes up a lot of kids without them and it's, done, it's done more with mothers and their sons than any other combination for some reason and it's um and then men are much less likely to disclose any sort of sexual abuse um right. I mean, statistically it's been it's been shown that there it takes them you know on average 25 years to to basically um report that something happened to them like that and whereas with women it's a pro- about five years is the average wow. and it has to do with a lot of like you know stigmas about masculinity and you know things like that make you know a guy question his masculinity and you know right. Makes sense. And then conversely, and then I mean, ironically, that same system that that makes it difficult for men to share, I think, contributes a lot to to uh, what what you know people call toxic masculinity. Because men who, and this is not in every instance, of course, but like men, when that happens to them, a lot of times they react in ways that I guess would represent toxic masculinity, right? as a, as a, to, to, because they're insecure about, you know, how that has those events, that abuse kind of screwed them up as far as their sexual identity, you know, and he definitely, right. Ronaldo had some of that going, but I always, I, I, I thought that he, he had somehow managed to be himself and just let the chips fall where they may. And, you know, find out who his real friends were, who weren't. And, but he never hurt anybody that I know of along the way in any, in any capacity, you know, maybe he might've said a hurtful thing to someone, but nothing, nothing more than anyone does just out of being thoughtless or insensitive. But, um, he was so pure hearted, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of that was in reaction to, to what happened to him. It makes perfect sense. I mean, he, he, he actually had a, a much more constructive way of dealing with it than most people do. And um, it it definitely comes across. I mean, I never met him, but in watching the documentary, it doesn't seem like he, it's even in his capacity to hurt someone. Like he just, it's so, he's so. It wouldn't even occur to him. Right. He, I mean, that's what, that's what came across to me is just this like innocence and sweetness and just like, well, why would you want to do that? Like why, and why are people doing that to me? Like, yeah. So like, I don't, and, and, and I think, yeah, well, I don't want to keep relating him to Bruce, but in some for some reason, my brain keeps going. There, there are similarities. Um, and I think Bruce maybe was more likely to, to speak out against his oppressors and uh, and maybe hold on to some grudges that he'd, and that some dark fantasies and yeah. about payback, maybe. Yeah. But, um, uh, but that's with Ronaldo it just kind of all went into Rocketerania and, and in that way sort of worked it out for him. 
I guess. Yeah, it's the pen mightier than the sword kind of thing. He's like, this person, you know, persecuted me all these years and took advantage of the fact that, I mean, he was aware that he was vulnerable to bullying, but he didn't quite understand why. He just said, you know, they picked on me because I was different, you know, and he didn't ever try to explain about what about him was different other than he said that, you know, he was probably more sensitive more sensitive minded artistic child, which, you know, left him sort of a target for bullying. But of course, I think it had a lot to do with, with other things and probably, you know, um, being on the autistic spectrum and not having any sort of accommodations made because he wasn't ever even diagnosed. He was just thrown in there, you know, back in the days when there was no anti-bullying campaign, it was right open season. But I, yeah, you know, he basically would, if somebody had done him wrong, he would just turn him into a character, a bad character in rocketry. <laughs> right. And it was like a secret, like coded way of dealing with it, you know? Um, so, so amazing. I, but it wasn't violent at all. Yeah. No, it makes me think, you know, what if everyone had that as an outlet or something like it, like some mm-hmm. way to just turn it into a parallel, a fantasy that parallels reality, but you can just work out all the issues in, in the fantasy so that they don't have yeah. to ruin your reality. That's, I, I thought the same thing because it certainly worked for him. I mean, he credits Rocketrania. He said it served two purposes. Number one, it was his art school because he was self-taught. He, he studied history in college. Um, and back to your other question though, he also, his favorite class that he took in college at the university of Colorado, um, you know, majoring in history, he, his favorite course was a psychology course and he learned a lot in that one course and it helped him a lot in sort of figuring out his problems and why was his family the way it was. And, you know, sort of figuring out that, you know, a lot of what people did to him or said to him was really more about them than himself. mostly about your movies do you want to talk about yourself and or growing up or anything yeah we can talk about that um i don't i don't know what to ask you but do you do you have a do you have stuff that stands out from your childhood that is yeah i mean i i i came it's taken me a while to sort of come to grips with it but like i I can finally say now definitively that I grew up in a, in a very abusive family. It was primarily emotional abuse and it was just, um, it, you know, it, it was one of the things that forced me to, I mean, or not forced me, but like 
that I found, you know, substance abuse was a great way to deal with it, I thought at the time. And so I kind of got, got into that, you know, from about age 17 and caused me a lot of troubles and problems because of that. But it was like, I just had to numb myself from the feelings that, you know, of, of abuse in my family. And it was coming from multiple directions, but, um, uh, and you have siblings. Well, my sister and I are not close and, um, there's always been kind of a, I don't know what it is. So she, I, I always joke. I think she was, she's from day one. She was just really disappointed that I arrived you know, three years oh. after because the world had revolved around her prior to that. And, and it's just like, she's still mad at that, but, um, <laughs> but there's we, probably some truth to that. I mean, it's certainly a common thing where the second born is not welcomed by the first. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I had similar dynamics in terms of to like Bruce and Ronaldo and that I had, you know, my mom was really unstable emotionally and, you know, and now a little more distance maturity, I can kind of see like looking back at her family, why she ended up the way she was, but she, um, you know, I don't think she wanted to have children. I think it was just something that was expected of her. And, and she did not hide that fact from us. She pretty much let us know. And so there was that. And then I, I, um, experienced, um, sexual abuse on multiple instances from different people. And, um, and so that was pretty traumatic and, wow. uh, extreme. Yeah. Extreme bullying. Like we lived in Japan for a year when I was seven and some, boys in on the in an apartment on the seventh floor of our building was up there hanging out with them and they were both of them were high school seniors and these uh, they grabbed me and hung me out the seventh floor window by my ankles you know holy shit (laughs) yeah ever since then i've been terribly fearful of heights but strangely only on man-made objects like i can climb a tree or I climb up the side of a cliff and I don't feel scared. But if you put me on a balcony, you know, at a hotel and it's like 20 floors up, I'm just about to lose it. I'm just so, you know, afraid of it. Well, rightfully so. You know, yeah. That's unbelievable. That's, you only see it in movies. You, you hope it's, it's always just in movies, but I, I guess it happens yeah. in real life too. Was that yeah. just, it was just straight up to terrorize you. There was no, Oh yeah, they just got a kick out of it. Yeah, oh, that's awful. But, uh, yeah, but um, you know, and there was a whole lot of bullying from different people, including including my one of my grandfathers was bullying. But then I had um a lot of it growing up in school. But there are also a lot of great aspects of, of, of to my childhood. I mean, there was you know living in a small town out kind of in a rural area, you know, we could just, we were free to, you know, if it, if we weren't in school that day, we'd just, you know, eat breakfast, get on our bikes and just be gone all day, you know, playing all over the place and ride our bikes all over town, wherever we wanted to go. And then as long as we were home by dinner time, you know, it was fine. That's the best. I feel so fortunate to have been from that generation where we were yeah. allowed to roam free. Yeah. It's unfortunate that it's just not something that can happen anymore. It seems like a thing of the past, sadly. Yeah. Unless you live in Finland or something. <laughs> yeah. I went to um, 
I ended up, I excelled like in math and physics and science and stuff. And even though I, also, I always had this right brain left thing that were kind of balanced, like I did well on other things too. But at the time, especially again, grow up in Kernersville, it was like starting in junior high, they were like, well, you need to be start thinking about what your vocation is going to be, you know? So they were like, you're good at this. So maybe you should stay on that track. So I just kept focusing more and more on advanced math and, and physics and science courses. And so um, when I went off to college, I went to NC state and just, you know, I wasn't passionate about it, but I just thought, well, this is the logical thing to do is to become an engineer. My dad was an engineer. And so um, I actually graduated with a BS in electrical engineering and, you know, and as a kid growing up too, during the whole Apollo space program era, you know, I'd always fantasize about being an astronaut or just somehow working, you know, with the space program. And so my first job was out of college at state. I went and worked in Florida um, for um, Honeywell and they were a subcontractor to the space shuttle program. And so we worked on a, the, this big electronic box that controlled the main engines on the shuttle. Oh, wow. Did that. And, and, but I wasn't happy at all. I mean, I just, I was, I just didn't, this was not where I needed to be and I knew it. Um, and so I eventually just quit and, you know, came back to North Carolina and I did various things. I worked for a small town newspaper, um, which paid almost nothing, but I was given complete free reign to take photos and write feature stories about people. And, and I, and that sort of sowed the seeds to documentary filmmaking from there. It's not a big leap from there. Um, to documentary cool. filmmaking. And then I taught high school one year. I just needed a job and it was like, they're hiring lateral entry. You don't even have to have a teaching certification or degree. They just needed people in math and science. So I did that for a year. And, uh, and then I went to film school to grad school. And that's when I set off to, you know, become a filmmaker first and other working on other kinds of, in other mediums of art too writing and stuff nice did it was it your work at the newspaper that introduced you to the idea that you might want to do documentaries or did you already think about it no i hadn't thought about it at all i just you know like that i had i'd been shooting a lot of photographs like when i was an engineer i had this you know our, we had our notebooks that we walked around with and we you know were solving problems that we were dealing with on the electronics and stuff like that. But throughout my notebook, I wish I still had it. I, I must have tossed it out, but it had like, you know, I was drawing furniture designs and writing little short stories. In like oh, wow. Notebook. So, you know, the, the, this latent, you know, like desire to be an artist was there. Yeah. And, um, I bought a, like a VHS video camera at the time. It was like a real nice VHS camera and just kind of film stuff documentary style stuff nothing that amounted to anything and then i worked for the newspaper and and i realized i really like telling other people's stories and and i loved photography and so then um they were tearing this old school down in my hometown and it was a school that you know my parents had gone to my grandparents um and it had once been like the social center of the town i mean that's where everything happened it was at this big school they're tearing it down like they've done with a lot of older schoolhouses because it was basically a fire trap. Right. And also like, you know, a lot of schools have, you know, it's all one floor and yeah. it's much, uh, much more fireproof than that thing was. But 
but I looked into the history of the town and I found this old film footage of like, they used to have essentially kind of like a fair out there where, um, there were rides, you know, Ferris wheels and, um, and they had all kinds of bizarre, they had like a boxing ring that people were having boxing matches and then they were doing like jousting, not <laughs> against, not against another person, but like they're, you know, they had, uh, they were on horseback and they wore the like kind of like the armor and then they had their I guess their lance and they would try to lance these rings that were hanging out there you know it was a competition so just all this crazy stuff that was going on that I uncovered and I just found that kind of work intriguing not only the stories were interesting but um, I've always liked working sort of a collage form where you're taking all these pieces and you're putting them together to to create a story or to give meaning. And, um, and so I interviewed a lot of people and so I made this, this documentary and, you know, it looks like something someone would make in six weeks who didn't know what they're doing, but, uh-huh. it, but it served the purpose of getting me fired up about doing it. And so, yeah, I went to film school and then, you know, made, I got into stop motion for a while because of, um, uh, Bruce, after I met Bruce, he kind of inspired me to try stop motion, but I just, Oh my God. It's just so, it takes so much time to make things. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely an introvert, but man, that requires way too much solitude. Right. <laughs> hard to make a living at it unless you're making commercials or something. So, um, and just the tedium, it would just, that would just drive me nuts. <laughs> Even if I loved what I was doing, I don't think I could do it. Uh, there's something about the repetition that would just make me crazy. Yeah, it it can be really tedious, mind numbing. But um, and I had one disaster. Uh, I was filming this, um, you know, three D like um stop motion puppet animated film, and I shot for nine months, and it was all the same roll of film, you know, because it, you know, whole roll of film only holds at that frame rate about two minutes 30 seconds and so you know you can only complete a few seconds every day depending on how complex something is so i after nine months i decided to sent the roll in only to find out that my 16 millimeter camera had a light leak somewhere so there was this burned in white like crescent shape right in the middle of the image so it's like months of work totally down the drain that's a nightmare yeah now it would never happen because you can look at everything instantaneously and see what you're right. doing then you know you send it off to the lab and keep your fingers crossed that, that everything was properly exposed that's so scary and that's that alone would be enough to for me to give up that, that <laughs> pursuit forever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i just I, and i really just like you know the uh, I'm trying to think of the way to put it. Just the whole collection of skills that are necessary for uh, making documentaries, I think, has suited me well. Like a lot of people have said, you know, wow, transitioning from engineering to filmmaking, that's like a 180. Like, how did that work? How would your engineering degree come in handy? But it, I always tell people engineering is just about problem solving. That's all it's about. And so problem solving can help you and many different disciplines and definitely in filmmaking, there are a lot of problems that have to be solved. Not all of them technical by any means, logistical and other things. And then I also 
always had pretty good facility with words, with writing and with communicating with others and genuinely enjoy meeting new people and taking an interest in their life. And so all those things kind of work together to, to make me feel like that was, you know, what I should be doing. And, and, uh, so that's kind of what my main pursuit was. impossible for me to be in a bad mood when I'm like in the creative groove. It's like, you know, this idea comes to you and it's just like this, at least for me, it's like this boost of dopamine, I guess, or whatever. It's like, you know, I get this energy from it and it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And if I don't, it's just like, if I don't go to the, to the gym regularly, I go there and swim and work out, you know, in the pool and, you know, my body will start feeling like crap if I don't go for several days. And then, of course, that leads to, you know, problems with my mood or mental health, too. And and I found that creativity, exercising that has a has a great impact on, you know, having a positive mood. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. In fact, I can't I can't. It's hard for me to even stay positive without it. Like I, I sort of. My my default is to be depressed, and uh, <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm the same way. Yeah, I mean, I think it is for a lot of people. I think it's just sort of what life does to to sensitive people. Um, and if if you have some creative pursuit, it's a it can be life saving. You know, it's like really it's and it's like you said, you just can't be in a bad mood while you're doing it. Right. And the hardest part for me and probably most people is just to get like just get past the the mood or the wall that's there to to start. And then as soon yeah. as you start, it just magically all goes away. Yeah. There's you know, I, I there's definitely a fear factor and it's like that with any endeavor for me anyway. It's like you know, this fear that I'm gonna fail. There's there's this perfectionism in me. Not that by any means, like my work is anywhere near perfect, but like, but there, but it's different from the whole like characteristic of being a perfectionist to an unhealthy degree. And so a lot of times it paralyzes me because I, I'm, unless I kind of have it mostly figured out before I start, you know, and I, I just so terrified that I'll, you know, fail at it. So that's one of the big things for me to overcome. Yeah, I get that. And for another one, I don't know if you experienced this, but for me, it's just the the sheer act of expressing myself and the vulnerability that that brings about. I mean, that's true for me more with music, I guess, um, but with art too. It's like I'm if I if I make this thing, then somebody's going to see it, and then they're going to judge it, and then I'm going to feel judged. And what you know, uh, absolutely. I don't know. I I wish. Well, I guess I guess that might be part of the. It might be a necessary component 
I'm not sure. I don't know too many artists who are just like, I don't care doing it, doing it, whatever, you know, don't care. Yeah. What thinks. Well, Bruce Bigford and Ronaldo Cooler were two of them. <laughs> yeah, I guess they do exist. I mean, they, they must've, I don't know. Maybe there's a, maybe there's an element like a psychological element of having already had enough, you know, judgment and just gotten through it to the point where you're just like, now I truly don't care. And I feel like that for me, that's been the case. Like the older I get and the more I look back on who I used to be and what I, you know, what I used to think about myself and how much that's changed. Uh, it, it is easier to just go into it without caring what the, what the outcome is. And just because I, I recognize the benefit of doing it regardless of the outcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the best stuff, the best stuff you come up with when you, when you're, when you're, when it's not dependent on what you think the outcome is going to be like, um, like for me, my best films that uh, have come about is because I wanted to make them the way I wanted to make them, you know, and it's, um, but you still have to, I think any artist has to have, you, you can go too far the other way too. Like the critic serves a, the inner critic serves a, a necessary role to me. I mean, if you, if you shut down your inner critic entirely, you risk being self-indulgent, you know, and, and right. then if, your critics too strong you'll never make anything original or you know um what's the, nothing that's really truly from the heart you know exactly yeah uh, i think that's probably the walk that we're all that's, that's the, the tightrope we're all standing on anybody who's trying to create something yeah um, cool man well is there anything else on your mind anything else you want to say before we wrap up i can't think of anything it's been really great i really appreciate you having me on i was really honored when you asked and um it's my pleasure man and and it's an honor to to talk to you i really love your work and i look forward to whatever comes next in whatever realm yeah it's really uh it's i i just when i watch both either and both of these documentaries i i just wonder how many more brilliant recluses are there hiding out in the world that just need to be found and brought into the light you know there's got to be a bunch because you think i mean what are the odds like you know that i've run into two of them just without seeking them out you know they just plopped in my lap and it's like there's lots of folks i think out there and um you know, who knows what happens to their work when they pass away, if, if they're never discovered while that's, they're still alive. Yeah, that's, that makes me, makes my stomach hurt thinking that, but it's got to be true. There's probably millions like that, you know, because yeah. a, a lot of them have been found just by accident, you know, Henry Darger or like mm-hmm. some of these other, some musicians who just had entire catalogs that didn't come about until they died and one of their relatives was like, Oh, what's this? Yeah. And then have, it's important to have a relative who actually sees some value in it as opposed to, you know, like if, if Ronaldo had died without having revealed all this stuff to me and telling me the story, you know, even if someone had kept it because there was very little written down, they wouldn't have any idea what the meaning of it was or the whole story. 
And, you know, furthermore, you know, his landlord may very well have just dumped it in the trash, you know, or not knowing what it was. Yeah. I'm sure it, I'm sure it happens. Um, I think of uh, Daniel Johnston too. I I talked to the, one of the producers of, of the, the Daniel, the devil and Daniel Johnston. And he said Uh that when they went to their house, he went to Daniel's parents' house, the tapes that he had made and literally thousands of them, like there are thousands and thousands of cassette tapes that were just in garbage bags in the garage. They just had no idea. They weren't throwing them in the garbage, but, but that's sort of, that's the sort of care that was taken with them. It's just like, well, what are, like, what are we going to do with these? Just, they're just in the way, you know? Wow. There's gotta be a lot of like genius art floating around or just like tucked into little, you know, basements and closets that, yeah the people like you help bring to the rest of us so i appreciate you for that oh well thank you it was my honor and it was kind of like the kind of thing where i couldn't i couldn't not do it once i met them i felt like it was a responsibility to be like more people need to know about how brilliant this person is and how how beautiful their art is and so i feel fortunate to have run across them and had and for them giving me that opportunity definitely was grateful so well, it seems like it was meant to be. You, you were, you were the one for a reason. And you were yeah. able to tell their stories really well. So, well, I appreciate nice it. Nice job. Thanks, man. Well, it's great talking to you, Brett. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Same here, Justin. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, it's it's a pleasure. I'll, um, let's let's be in touch. Okay, let's do. Cool. Well, take care. I hope uh, hope everyone remains healthy in these uncertain times same world same with you man thank you all right thank you take care all right good night good night thanks for listening everybody that was my new friend brett ingram uh, you spell his name B-R-E-T-T-I-N-G-R-A-M. So at his website, brettingram.org, you can find both the movies that he made that we were talking about, um, the documentaries. One is called Monster Road, and that features the life and work of Bruce Bickford. And the other is Rocketerania, featuring Ronaldo Cooler and his work. Both of those documentaries are now available to stream through Brett's site. Um, They haven't been in the past, and I'm really excited that now for six bucks a piece, you could watch either of those. I recommend both of them. I could not recommend them more highly. Uh, Two of my favorite documentaries, and I've seen a lot of them. Um, So many thanks to Brett. Thank you, dear listeners. Uh, If you want to hear my interview with Bruce Bickford, that's back at episode 22. Um, I was extremely honored to get to sit with him and talk for a while about his amazing work and a bit of his worldview um, and a bunch of other things. So yeah, check that out, if you please. And also, thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoyed. And if you want to support Outspoken, you can do so at 
patreon.com slash outspoken podcast. Uh, it's a membership and reward based system. So you can sign up for as little as two bucks a month or five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever. And, uh, you'll get something in exchange. Uh, I make all the music for the podcast. So one of the tiers has the musical interludes as a reward. Um, I make artwork, which I'd like to share with you. That's one of the tiers and, uh, so on and so forth. So please support me any way you can, or just support me by listening or telling people about it or liking it or sharing it. Okay. I love you all. I will see you next week. Please take care, stay healthy, stay inside and, uh, talk to you soon. Bye.